We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Fellas, listen up. All you ever ask for is an opportunity. You got it today. Where else would you rather be than right here, right now? The Rock Pile Report with Buffalo Bills season ticket holder, Drew Gear. Be aggressive. You have literally nothing to lose. You're a borderline football team. If I don't keep laughing about this stuff, my teeth are going to turn around and devour my brain. The Bills make me want to Third down, 14. Going deep into double coverage, and that will be White picking it off. His fifth of the season. First and goal here. Meanwhile, you got the Wildcat again. You got Connors going to take a low snap, and then the ball is out, and the Buffalo Bills surround it and have it. Hodges fires, and that's going to be picked off. That's White again. White. With the second interception, is forced out of bounds at around the 20-yard line. Going to the end zone. Picked off in the end zone. Jordan Poyer with the interception. After the race to the line of scrimmage, reset the offense. Cost them a ton of time on second and 18. Hodges signals deep downfield and throws, and that one is picked off in the end zone. of the Rock Pal Report Podcast. I am your host, Bill Season Ticket Holder, Drew Gear. That's my producer, Chris Krueger, and that was Al Michaels from NBC Sports with the call. Whoo! Chris! <laughs> it is throwback week, ladies and gentlemen. So people, strap in, crack a beverage, because as Bills fans, we are absolutely partying like it's 1999. I mean, Chris, make no bones about it. 
It's been 10 years since the Bills last finished with a double-digit win total. Like 19, 10 years has been 20. Like 1999. The Bills are a middling offense, but have the second scoring defense in the NFL. And they clinched a playoff berth on their own. There is no backing in for the 2019 Buffalo Bills. Chris, I'd love to open a beer, but I feel like it's more fitting that I honor my bet to you. Yeah, back in January, open that Seagram's Sangria. I felt like we were making the playoffs the way we finished out last last year, and I really enjoyed our schedule, <laughs> what it was going to look like. We didn't at the time, didn't know when and where we were going to play everybody, but I thought we had a very easy schedule, and it showed. And we have 10 wins, dude. 10 wins. I'm not even going to chug this like I usually do with most Seagrams. I'm going to sip this and enjoy it, because for as terrible as this is, Chris, you know what's delicious? It's talking about the 10-win Buffalo Bills. <laughs> God, although that is pretty terrible. Good Lord. Ah. Let's just get right into this. Week 15 recap. The Buffalo Bills 17, the Steelers 10. Stats of the game. Josh Allen, 13 to 25, 52%. 139 yards, one touchdown, one interception, and a 65.2 quarterback rating. Nathan Peterman. Wait, I mean Devlin Hodges. Duck Hodges. 23 of 38, good for 60%. 202 yards, one touchdown, four interceptions, and a 43.9 rating. Mr. Hodges, 11 passes of 10 or more yards downfield. Five completions, three incompletions, and three interceptions. Pittsburgh's passing offense. The boundary wide receiver's a number one tight end. 24 targets, 15 catches, 185 yards, one fumble, and three interceptions. All other players on offense, 12 targets, 8 catches, 17 yards. Devin Singletary, 4.1 yards per carry, 7 first downs. The team had 17 total. John Brown, 10 targets, 7 catches, 99 yards, 140-yard reception. Brown, over the 1,000-yard mark. First time since Watkins in 2015, and will finish with more yards. Bills defense, five total takeaways, 229 yards allowed. Pittsburgh's lowest of the season. Steelers, number one in sacks, held to one sack and five quarterback hits despite a high blitz percentage. Chris, for people who tune into Sunday Night Football to see explosive offensive-driven games, they all probably went to bed at halftime, no? Probably, but if you're a fan of the NFL and you have a base knowledge of every team, you knew that that was going to be a defensive battle. <sighs> Chris, what was it like for you? It was, like, weird. Uh, got Sunday. Up, yeah, got up. Let's with, talk about it. Yeah, I got up with a lady, uh, made breakfast. Uh, she left. I, I think I had one drink and then i went to her place because we brought taco dip over to watch watch the game when we got a fight about over lettuce that was fun to fight about like god this this me yeah me and her do because she claims that i threw the lettuce on the tape on the table instead of finger rolling it off back on the table and we just started yelling at each other and i was like you can fucking do this 
on your own. I'm going back in the living room to watch football. I'm, I'm just I'm too nervous for tonight. <laughs> and I mean, something that you had to deal with, you know, I had to deal with it too. Is oh. is not not cracking drinks too early, and then it just spilling over into <sighs> drunken rage during kickoff. Chris, I wildly underestimated how little NFL football I can watch without without just looking to put a drink in my hand. It was rough. Sunday was one of those days where as the as the morning progressed and then it went into afternoon and that first year the set of one o'clock games ended, my wife kept kind of walking around and she's looking. She's like, You're not having a beer yet? No. No. I've got my eyes I kept saying, I've got my eyes on the prize. But then that four o'clock slate of games came around and my palms started to get itchy and I'm like, God, I don't God, I just want a beer. As my fantasy football team's just shitting out on me, I'm like you know what would go really well with this is a beer. And I, I couldn't do it, Chris. Because, again, I didn't want to be a belligerent mess when people showed up at our house to watch this game. I didn't want to miss what was the bills on primetime TV. And then anxiety. Let's talk about that for a second, Chris. I'm not going to lie to you. I've only felt anxiety a few times in my entire life. Now, people who've gotten to know me throughout the course of the year, whether they're listeners from the podcast or people who have just other podcasters who have gotten to know us over the years. The one thing everyone walks away from after meeting me for the first time is that the persona that I seem to give out over the air, it's not a shtick. I genuinely don't care about a whole lot of fucking things. I can count on one hand the number of times that I've ever felt anxiety. The day I proposed to my wife, and at that point, I didn't even know what it was. I just knew that my chest was kind of tight and I, I was having trouble drawing a full breath and I couldn't, I couldn't figure out why. Turns out that's anxiety. Uh, when waiting to get my wife's last ultrasound results. And Sunday, around 5 o'clock. Chris, that's it. Those are the three times in my life where I've felt anxiety. <laughs> that's that, <laughs> Proposing to a woman, your child... In Bill's football. That's it. I mean, that is you. Because not what else matters? <laughs> Let's be honest. Nothing. For the first time in a long time, the Buffalo Bills played in front of the entire country on Sunday Night Football. I mean, Chris, it was electric. And knowing that they handled their business in front of everyone was even better. We set some firsts in my house during that game. First of all, Mark with a C and his wife became the first couple to lose their own individual Seagram's bets in the same night. My wife and I had our first, Chris, we've been together for five years, had our first legitimate fight about dinosaurs and whether or not velociraptors have wings. <laughs> what, were some of your most, what were some of your moments from Sunday night that you, you walked away well, for starters, it was the fight I got into with my lady over <laughs> lettuce. That's that's start of my day right there. And then, I mean, at least for anybody that follows us on Twitter at Rockpile Report, uh, more uh, live gifting of you. <laughs> that has to be like a like Trevor from uh, Minnesota that came to our tailgate tweeted at us and was like, it, it, "Is this happening happening right now? If so, I'm here. I'm so here for this." And it's got to be like a new thing going forward. Is where I just. Gif you the I like entire you're just exploiting my manic personality. It's worth it. 
Other people like it. And what happened after the game, Chris? What did you do when, when the game was over, the win was in hand? Well, I got to get up for work at 5 a.m. So yeah, you I went, and your lady escaped out the door. split immediately. You almost Irish goodbye the entire room. Which would have been my preference, but I was with my lady. So she's Italian, and she has to say goodbye to everybody. Hey, it was nice seeing you. We'll see you again. Yeah, no, shut the fuck up and just walk out the door. Irish goodbye. It's the way to go. I was in, I was in bed within 40 minutes after the game. I wish, Chris, I wish that I could say I was as lucky as you to have been in bed. And I wish my wife and my neighborhood, I wish everybody was in the same boat as you because you all left me to my own devices after this massive Bills win. The Bills just clinched the playoffs and shit came off the rails. Let me let me walk you through what my night was like, Chris. You did text me that you were up until 3 a.m. and you ate the rest of the taco truck. <laughs> That is not on your list of things here that you did. No, no, no. I've made a, I, I made a list just so I, I didn't forget. Because I don't want to leave any of this out because it was a thing. First of all, I, I told my wife to go up and go to sleep. Go, go lay on the couch, watch TV, do whatever you want to do. I'm going to clean up after the party. I started listening to Prince's 1999, Chris. You heard it before you even got to leave. You heard it on the speaker, right? Yes, I did. So then I put in headphones so as not to bother my wife while she was trying to sleep. An hour later, she caught me dancing with two beers and just walked back upstairs rather than ask me what the fuck I thought I was doing. Chris, I went down a fucking rabbit hole of 80s music. And when I say a rabbit hole, Chris, I'm talking like Prince's catalog. Susudio was on the playlist. Men at work. You had synth horns, saxophones, Eddie Money got involved. I listened to the song Tarzan Boy by Baltimore. Yeah, a band nobody should know about. No one should know that band's name. But I listened to the song Tarzan Boy for at least a half hour straight. And at one point, I looked around and realized I had three open beers and I don't know where they came from. (laughs) I was listening to the Top Gun soundtrack, which started which became the Ghostbusters soundtrack, which led me to watching the Ghostbusters movie while I was waiting for the game to be available for replay on Game Pass, Chris. Was this Ghostbusters 1 or 2? 1! Please. Out of the two of those movies, one is clearly the superior Ghostbusters. Chris, my night was anarchy. It got, it, my wife went to bed. And I walked around the house with headphones on for hours. Well, yeah. And just you, being, uh, just. <laughs> you also didn't have to go to work on Monday. No. No, I didn't. And thank God, Chris, because it was a shit show of the highest order. And also, Chris, I don't think I like the 80s, but apparently I have a problem. 80s, very underrated for music. <laughs> Very underrated am, decade for music. Apparently, when I when I get freewheeling with a beer in each hand, you turn a little synth keyboard on, and I, you, you got me. I'm hooked. <laughs> but I'll tell you this, Chris, for as weird as that night got, I wouldn't change any of it for anything in the world. Let's talk about the game. Our game recap, and Chris, I got to start off with Josh Allen, who I've taken up to calling the Nerd Slayer. Do you remember Mel Kuyper's iconic quote during the draft about Josh Allen? Uh, no, I just remember that he had him as his number one. Stats are for losers. 
iconic quote from that hawk-nosed fucking old lady-looking piece of shit. But Sunday night, you have to imagine that he was out there somewhere watching Josh Allen's performance on national television and smiling a little bit because that's exactly what he was talking about. Josh Allen's game wasn't the prettiest thing in the world in the stat sheet, but he was clearly the better quarterback on the field, despite what those nerds over at Pro Football Focus might have you believe. Chris, which by the way, I'd like to give a hearty, kind of a Kirk Cousins-esque, you like that? Do you like that? To all of those dorks over there who have the balls to put into print that the Steelers were going to win that game because Devlin Hodges was a quote-unquote better quarterback than Josh Allen. Are you fucking kidding me? Well, if Devlin Hodges was any good, he would have been drafted. (laughs) Ultimately, when the game was on the line... Josh Allen answered the bell. I mean, what more could you ask for? I can't say enough about this kid. And I know that that sounds crazy considering how this season started. Me, here in this kitchen, screaming at Nate Geary. About, on our bye week, on our bye week. Oh my God, for almost an hour about the fact that Josh Allen would never be quote unquote the guy. I'm now sitting here wondering, I, listen, Chris, I'm trying to lose weight. I don't know if I have any more room for all of the goddamn crow that I have to eat. Box score. Once again, ugly. You heard in this. Chris, atrocious. Your quarterback threw for 139 yards in a football game. Yeah, that's, uh, that's, not, that's not good. And yet, he's also the engine that drives this team to its victories. And it happens in a lot of little ways. And Chris, when you watch that very first possession and you see him throw, and one of the things pro football focus and those dorks over there latched onto was this idea that, that kind of a made up statistic that they now call interceptable passes. Turnover worthy throws is what they call it. Oh yeah, the first play of the game. Threaded the needle. He threads the needle through traffic to his wide receiver for a first down. Most quarterbacks would have gotten picked off on that throw. But Josh Allen has a fucking arm and he knows it. And he trusts it to make plays, which ultimately can catch defenses off guards. It can. Then he runs in that touchdown, Chris, behind what looks at first glance like a handoff to the running back, which causes the linebacker to crash down into the wrong gap. And Josh Allen just strolls in for a touchdown. That's him being smart. Head on a swivel. He understands the mechanics of how this defense is going to attack him. And he uses his legs smartly, far more than he ever did last year. Chris, last year, like, think about that Jaguars game. The most impactful plays he made in that win, which at the time we were like, that's a big win for this team, came when he just started running 20, 30 yards at a clip downfield. Now what you see is Josh Allen running behind the line of scrimmage, looking downfield to let his wide receivers make plays for him. I mean, you, you, have to, you have to agree with me that that's, it's good for his development and it's proof of how far he's come just in two short years. Well, yeah, and I would say based on other people that he was drafted with, I mean, it also kind of helps that he's had the same coaches throughout his tenure in Buffalo. There hasn't been any coaches changes. They brought in Ken Dorsey. So who knows, who knows how much Ken Dorsey's helping? 
I mean, it, there's a lot going on that's different, but Josh Allen is the straw that stirs the drink for the Buffalo Bills, no matter what the stat sheet says. He's now responsible for a touchdown in 20 straight games, which is tied for with Lamar Jackson for the longest active streak in the NFL. Is it a wonder that both of our teams are doing well, Chris? I mean, gee, yeah, we're Josh Allen is has has led us to a couple of victories this season, and he is progressing as a quarterback, and he might be the guy. God, you're a fucking wet blanket. I'm I'm all fired up over here, and you're just just a pragmatic Pete over here. Sunday wasn't Allen's finest hour. Okay, 139 yards. Nobody is going to give you credit for throwing 139 yards, even if it is against a very good Pittsburgh defense. But when the pressure was on, I don't give a shit what the box score watchers and the quote-unquote numbers guys who try to discount the human element of football think. Allen had ice in his veins. Chris, it's the fourth quarter. The game's on the line. The Steelers' patented uh, pump-up song, Renegade, comes blaring over the speakers. Throughout the stadium, the stadium's going apeshit. And you respond with a 40-yard completion, followed up a few plays later by a touchdown pass. And then you get everybody on the sideline dancing. (laughs) Kind of like you after everyone left. Chris, Josh Allen isn't a Pro Bowl quarterback yet. But when, Chris, the, the quote that I like comes from The Walking Dead's Abraham Ford. When it's time to, quote unquote, lay your big meaties on the chopping block, it's time to put up a shut up. Josh Allen is unflappable. And that's something that regardless of what you put up statistically, you cannot discount. You can't quantify it, but you can't hold it against the kid either because he... Chris, how few quarterbacks have that? How many Bills quarterbacks who have led moderately successful Bills teams, the Tyrod Taylors and the Ryan Fitzpatricks of the world, when the game was on the line in the fourth quarter, we watched Ryan Fitzpatrick throw an interception in the end zone to end the game in New England. We watched Tyrod Taylor throw a pick in what what would have been a comeback attempt against the Patriots. And discount the fact that they're both against New England, but the fact remains, when the pressure was on, when did our quarterbacks ever come through? And yet we're watching this young kid who is still learning how to be an NFL quarterback. It seems like he's got that fourth quarter clutch gene. He just figures out how to be the guy in the moment. He Kinda figures like out Tim what the team Tebow. needs. He figures out what the team needs and he gets it done. I mean that <sighs> Chris, it's it's an amazing thing to watch unfold in front of you. And luckily for him, he's not alone because he's got guys around him that are helping, <laughs> doing a lot of the heavy lifting. When you look at what the Pittsburgh D was, Chris, it was as good as advertised, and I was pumped to see that our offensive line was up to the task. The game was a slugfest. Drive by drive, punt by punt, each team was trying to figure out who was going to be the next one to break. That was largely because while well, the coverage groups for the Steelers are opportunistic, Their front seven is probably the best part of their defense. Everyone was in trouble, Chris. T.J. Watt, T.J. Watt, as advertised, was the most visibly disruptive player of the game. He's in on tackles. He's forcing fumbles, creating pressure. 
He was everywhere, Chris. Yeah, I mean, TJ, there's a there's a gif that I've seen on uh, on on uh, Twitter of a play where he came back to tackle Josh Allen, and he you could see him just going for that punch out, trying to <laughs> knock that ball and. Josh Allen just moves the ball ever so slightly, and he misses, and he goes like right between Josh Allen's arm and body and misses the ball. I mean, T.J. Watt is an animal. He was just all over the field. Well, very noticeable. To your point, forcing turnovers. He's responsible for the Singletary fumble. And then you think about just what he was doing against the run, not just the not just chasing the quarterback, but also chasing down running backs from behind. Forcing running backs back inside when we tried to bounce it out to his side. Play over play, the most noticeable player on the field for Pittsburgh. Cam Hayward, NFL veteran. He's the heart and soul of the Pittsburgh defense. The guy was almost unblockable throughout the game. Chris, anytime we even tried to give our tackles help with tight ends on the edge, he he just tore them apart. It was It was like watching a grizzly bear operate. And yet, somehow in the face of all this, neither of them, along with Bud Dupree, who used his speed specifically on Deion Dawkins. Deion Dawkins really was given some fits over the course of the game by Bud Dupree and his speed off the edge when it came to pass rushing. But none of it was allowed to wreck our game plan or keep the offense from putting up 17 points. And Chris, I think we have to toast them in that. Watts spent a lot of the game working on offensive tackle Cody Ford, who I've got to say I'm becoming more and more impressed with. Ever since, think about it, when Nseki went down, he's had to square up against the following. Von Miller from Denver. Demarcus Lawrence from Dallas. Outside linebacker Matthew Judon from Baltimore. And now TJ Watt. Again, some of the most premier pass rushing threats in the NFL. Over that span, he's from one play to the next, he may falter, but then he'll win a rep, he'll lose a rep, he'll win one, he'll win one, he'll win one like going away sometimes. He never seems to be glaringly overmatched, even if his technique is lacking a little bit. I mean, I'm thinking about the play where Watt blew right by Ford to the outside. Ford just didn't get off the snap quick enough, and Watt just beat him right around the corner, which was compounded by Dawkins on the same play being beat by Bud Dupree. But that's going to happen when you're playing a just premier talent at the defensive end position. And yet, snap over snap, when you look at the game in its entirety, Cody Ford more than held his own. Which, Chris, could you say the same thing about him early in the season? Uh, probably not. And then you think about what they were able to do up front just as collectively, as a def- as an offensive line against that defensive line of the Steelers, in terms of letting the ground game get going. They stabilized the offense. They kept Josh Allen healthy. They kept him safe. One sack, Chris. One sack against all of that pressure. That's incredible. It's, our offensive line played. They did a phenomenal job. Yeah, and it's... You know they they did a great job against you know Pittsburgh's you know front seven and you know when you're playing that well you know you're obviously going to be making some pretty good blocks for Devin Singletary to make some unbelievable cuts. Well, and that's it, Chris. Because if there was anything that made this a game, I mean, you take away the one catch by John Brown for forty yards, that means that Josh Allen threw less than ninety to everyone else. 
and even John Brown on different plays. The passing offense wasn't, I mean, they, he scored a touchdown. They moved the ball effectively when they had to. But it was Devin Singletary that really stabilized things for us on the offensive side of the ball. They paved the way up front, our big uglies, for 130 rushing yards. They controlled the line of scrimmage, Chris, which is something that when you're going up against a premier defense like that, it, Chris, are you used to seeing that type of a performance out of the Buffalo Bills? Uh, no. Maybe when I was a kid. I mean, think about Devin Singletary. Look at his night. His Him in particular. He stands out to me because he finishes with 89 yards rushing, which on its face isn't overwhelmingly, like, it doesn't blow your mind. Five, yard, five runs, though, of five or more yards. Only two carries for negative yardage out of 21. He, by himself, accounted for nearly half of our offense's first downs. I mean, to me, it's one of the sole reasons we came out of this unscathed despite Allen's subpar box score. The way he moves with his hand, with the ball in his hands is incredible. Chris, he makes jump cuts in the hole. These are veteran linebackers. These are defensive linemen who are used to grabbing, a, especially a small guy. But he's so shifty that no one ever gets a clean look at him. And he finds a way. Chris, how about the play where he sh- he should have lost two yards and somehow ran what looked like twenty yards to end up with a positive four? He yeah. ran around the entire offensive formation back the other way he to was, end up with four yards to the good. Yeah, he was incredible on Sunday night. And then you think about the game-winning touchdown. That play is directly set up by a fifteen-yard run by Devin Singletary. So on third down. Their defense is saying, okay, even the announcers are talking about how, well, Buffalo probably going to play conservative here in a tie football game, and you can see them already keying on Singletary. Ah, we're going to come downhill and try to take away that running back, not expecting that they're going to throw to a tight end who hasn't been targeted in God knows how long. (laughs) Since he was with Cincinnati. (laughs) Ultimately, I think Devin Singletary, didn't. he's not getting enough press for what he did to win this team the game on Sunday. And so if no one else is going to do it, we might as well, Chris. Kudos to that guy. But let's face it, Chris, our offense was efficient enough. Everything was good. We won the football game, but it's not because of what they did. Because we have an elite defense. Our defense brought the wood. They came with a chip on their shoulder. Talking about, everyone's talking about, oh, well, you know, the Bills are good on defense, which might keep it close. But the Steelers are better. They take the ball away more. Chris, Sunday night, they, those guys came out, and even against, <laughs> they found, uh, they proved to everyone on a national stage exactly what this team is coached to be which is incredibly difficult to move the ball on and opportunistic, fundamentally sound, no breakdowns. The first thing that stood out to me, if we're talking about applauding the defense for the fact that they won us this football game, the job the front seven did on the Steelers' offensive line. When you look at that group, the Steelers are starting five of some of the more veteran offensive linemen out there. Guard David DeCastro was one of the highest drafted guards ever. Center Marquise Pouncey, Ramon Foster, Alejandro Villanueva, they have been mainstays on the front for Pittsburgh. They've played together for years. They're all veterans. 
They're effective. And one, they're a group that was challenged personally by Mike Tomlin to become the backbone of their team when they named Devlin Hodges their starter. And they've paved the way over the course of the last few weeks for some impressive numbers. Chris, they're averaging 141 yards rushing per game without their top running back, James Conner. Only seven total sacks allowed over a three-game span with a rookie quarterback. And they've allowed the offense to average 17 points per game, which, Chris, if I told you you didn't have your number one running back, you're starting an undrafted free agent rookie quarterback, would you see 17 points again? Is something that's feasible. For Pittsburgh, no. It does not sound like... For anybody. That's that's a tall order. Yeah. And yet here we are talking about how good those guys are. So considering the fact that they've got this untalented, I guess untalented, but untested quarterback, it's a typical thing that they did so far this season. And it's why I think some of the biggest applause belongs to our front seven. Because literally, they were like a Three Stooges style bucket of cold water and a poke in the face and a poke in the eye for everything they were trying to do on offense. They held Pittsburgh to 51 total yards rushing, Chris. 3.3 yards per carry allowed. The lowest since Pittsburgh, both literally and figuratively, got beaten by Cleveland. And seven tackles for loss. They manhandled these guys. The line of scrimmage was owned by our defense when they were on the field. Chris, electric is the word I would use. Look at all of the individual performances. Trent Murphy. Trent Murphy's a forgotten man on this defense over the course of the last month. He shows up with a sack, a tackle for loss, and a huge forced fumble that saved our asses after that interception. Saved our asses and allowed us to go into the second into the second half with momentum. Jordan Phillips, goddamn wrecking ball, right there in the middle of the offensive line. A pair of sacks and a tackle for loss. And Chris, they were big sacks because it was... <laughs> it said big sacks. <laughs> yeah. Phrasing. What... Just his his sacks came in very timely places, you know. As they're trying to drive down the field to score the game, you know, to tie the game. Shaq Lawson played what might have been his most complete game. I, I want to say, I, Chris. I feel like this is a weekly thing now. Every week, I'm crowing about how Sam Shaq Lawson played his best game ever, and then the week, the week following, he outplays that performance. Sunday was no different. Best performance in a Bills jersey. He set the edge in the running attack. When they ran the ball, he was there, and he played with enough leverage to kind of hem in those outside runs. And at the same time, he plays with heavy hands, and he was pushing. He was creating pressure. He was getting, uh, what, (laughs) what was it? Sack and a tackle for loss for him, too. Ed Oliver doesn't hit the stat sheet, but he's taking on double teams. He's jumping to discourage Hodges from trying to throw the football, making him alter his throwing lanes, doing literally whatever he can to be disruptive. Yeah, when he's taking on double teams, that means he's also for, uh, giving one-on-one situations to his teammates. And, you know, that's why Jordan Phillips has been playing well all season long. Mm-hmm. Is, I mean, what, didn't he have a sack? He had a sack, right? Jordan Phillips had two. Two I was just saying that two sacks Jordan and not Phillips. two sacks and not voted to the Pro Bowl. Nah, fuck the Pro Bowl. Yeah, when you have nine and a half sacks and you're a Pro Bowl alternate, go fuck yourselves. This, this voting is done by dickheads, people who eat mayonnaise sandwiches. 
fuck out of here. Chris, the most impressive thing our defense did, they held the Steelers to not one, not two, not even three, but six drives that had fewer than seven yards. Four of those were three and outs. Credit that to the Bills doing such a good job in the trenches, being disruptive and finding ball carriers behind the line of scrimmage and forcing pass attempts from Hodges when he, Chris, how many times did he check the ball down in that game? A lot. A lot. And that, more than anything though, Chris, the fact that they got Duck Hodges, throwing the ball on third down is what dictated the outcome of this football game. We got to watch that Cinderella that everyone's been quacking about. People have fucking duck hats in the stands. And he turned into a pumpkin in front of everyone in the country. We talked on this show last week about how skeptical I was about Duck Hodges. And now for all the love that these nerds were piling on to him for his impressive statistical accomplishments, he was never being asked to, Chris, win the game. So much as he was just being asked to go out there don't fuck it up. Don't turn the ball over. And just be what we, I guess what I want to call it is, if I can quote it, is opportunistically aggressive. Well, Mike Tomlin said that a couple weeks ago. when Throw he benched, off play action. When they benched Mason Rudolph, they, he said, oh, I know Devlin Hodges won't give them, give the other team the game. <laughs> well, that's what you did on Sunday night. Well, and here's the thing. The way this plays out is that the Bills did such a good job in the front seven shutting down the run. Chris, they've been averaging over, what, 141 yards a game. Yep. Running the ball 30, 40 times a game. Now, you can't move the ball on the ground, which means you have to make Devlin Hodges a quarterback. Devlin Hodges has to win you this football game. Yeah. Their offensive coordinator was forced to task Hodges with throwing into one of the NFL's best secondaries to the tune of 38 attempts. That's just two throws shy of his previous starts combined. Two games, Chris, and you're going to make him throw more than you did in those two starts? That by itself is courting disaster. Yeah, you don't want a rookie undrafted quarterback throwing 38 times in a game. And exactly like we predicted during last week's show, putting the game on Hodge's shoulders was a fucking disaster. Chris, it was a giant mistake. We talk about Mike Tomlin being a good coach, but I'm sorry, a good coach doesn't you know what your strengths are. You don't let that happen, right? Correct. I mean, here's the thing that's, I think, even more glaring. When you watched Hodges play, you realize that as an undrafted rookie without a lot of experience, he's good at a couple things. Throwing short, accurately. Behind the sticks. And he only really has a rapport with a couple guys. I mean, look at his target selection. Of his 38 attempts, 24 of them went to the same three players. James Washington, Deontay Johnson, and tight end Nick Vanette. So that's an inexperienced quarterback throwing to an inexperienced pair of boundary-wide receivers and a tight end who just joined the team halfway through the season. Who all have the misfortune of having to work against Matt Milano, Trey Edmonds, uh, the, the tandem of Levi Wallace and Kevin Johnson on the outside, and Tredavious White. So when you look at it through that lens, no one should be shocked that his night went to shit the second they put the ball in his hands and asked him to win the game. 
He kept trying to challenge the best members of one of the best secondaries in the entire NFL, and he paid for it dearly. On his way to throwing to those three players, all three of his interceptions happened. Well, three out of his four. You know, There was the one to uh, Kane in the end zone that I don't even know what he was looking at. Which, Chris, hilariously, did anybody else see this? I, I, I <laughs> After the Deion Kane, you know, the, the intended pass for Deion, wide receiver Deion Kane in the end zone, I think it was the first pick. Poyer makes the interception. And you watch a player from the Pittsburgh Steelers do what looks like the saddest, slowest somersault that anyone's ever seen. Just in the middle of the end zone for no reason. And I started laughing. I was like, whenever anything goes wrong, that's how I'm going to leave the room from now on. I'm just going to slowly somersault my way out. It was for no reason. He, he, no one touched him. No one was around him. He just It was like he was going to his knees so aggressively that it just turned into a tumble. Chris, that right there, bad quarterback throwing to inexperienced wide receivers against our secondary, which just played out of its fucking mind. That's, that's what sealed the game. And I guess leads me to my biggest takeaway of the night. If you're watching that football game, if you're another coach... You're walking away thinking to yourself that we have to be damn good if we're going to threaten that defense. And if we're not, then we better at least be smart. And if you're not both, you're in a lot of fucking trouble. I mean, what? Chris, tell me that that secondary didn't just put on a show for the entire country. It did. We have the best defense, I think, in the NFL. And we may have a shot in the playoffs, depending where we're seated, to get maybe one win in the playoffs. Our maybe de- our, one. Our defense is that good. Now, we always crown a hero of the night. I mean, I feel like this is a foregone conclusion, but tonight's hero has to be cornerback Trey White. Do you know who the real heroes are? The guys who wake up every morning and go into their normal jobs and get a distress call from the commissioner and take off their glasses and change into capes and fly around fighting crime. Trey White, two picks, and now a Pro Bowl selection, which isn't, you know, nothing to... Chris, he's been snubbed consistently to this point in his career by national media, national fans, fans outside of Western New York. Sunday, everybody got to see what we've known for years. Trey White is one of the premier cornerbacks in the NFL. So are you surprised that he was voted into the Pro Bowl today? I'm not. We get to to watch this every week, and he was exceptional on Sunday with both of his picks. I mean, you think about how those picks happen. The first one just showed off his tracking ability. The moment the ball left Hodge's hand, you watch White break on it. He's like, oh boy, this is underthrown, and I'm going to come in there. He knew he had that ball about a second after it left Hodge's hands. And then his second pick, which is, I, I almost feel like the more impressive of the two, it just illustrated the fact that he can run a wide receiver's route for them after the snap. He knew where Deontay Johnson was supposed to break to get the ball before Johnson did. And he just shows up and grabs the ball out of the air and starts running down the sideline. Yeah, he mentioned it in, in his uh, postgame interview on buffalobills.com. He just trusted his, what he said. He trusted what 
he was seeing during the game that that was the route, and that and that's why he jumped jumped the route. I mean, that pick set up our game tying field goal, Chris. Everything the guy does is impactful. That's it. He's everywhere on the field, and he set the tone for the rest of the secondary. Maybe now, Chris, people will find. I mean, we saw it. He he got voted into the Pro Bowl finally after all these years. So who knows? Maybe now he's finally going to get some of the national recognition that everybody here in Buffalo already already gave the guy for being one of the game's premier corners. And we got to pick a zero for every game. And I've seen some outlets out there who are saying, well, you know, the Bills qualified for the playoffs and everything's good, so we shouldn't do it. Well, fuck you. I, this is the pettiest Bills podcast on earth. And I swear to God, we have a zero every week. This week's zero is wide receiver Cole Beasley. <laughs> wow, you suck at this. Six targets, one catch for six yards, and a tipped ball that resulted in a pick? Chris, that's, that, that's like Home Alone buzz your girlfriend woof that's how ugly that 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 game was for Cole Beasley yeah he did not have a great game and I and I kind of slightly put that interception on him I mean yes he did have to jump for but it also did hit him square in the hands he would have been better off just letting it go yeah you you brought in Cole Beasley because you know he's got short hands and that's a catch I think that's a catch Beasley has to have I mean they did an okay job of covering Beasley throughout the game but he left a lot out there on the field. And it's obvious that Allen was trying to get the ball to him throughout the game. I mean, he sees Beasley as one of his guys, one of his go-to receivers. And the fact that the Steelers defense was able to neutralize him and almost make him a weakness of our offense. And kudos to them. And I mean, Cole, hopefully, I mean, Chris, he's been on fire lately. So I'm inclined to let it go. But if we're going to make it any farther than the 2017 Buffalo Bills did, we're going to need all hands on deck, and I can't have another night like that. Especially not from a guy who's viewed as one of our biggest playmakers. Final thoughts. Chris? As one might expect, there has been a solid amount of just national buzz about the Buffalo Bills in wake of our victory. I think the Buffalo Bills have the best defense in the NFL. Uh, they have the second-best scoring defense, and they also, opposing quarterbacks, have the second-lowest passer ratings. And again, just got enough with Josh Allen's arm to just make things interesting. Now, there are ceilings to almost every team not named Baltimore and San Francisco in the NFL, but I think they've earned their spot. Listen, they've won four or five games. Their only loss is to the Ravens, and they were very competitive in that game. So it's it's time to give the Bills and the Bills Mafia some credit. Number nine. Colin Cowherd from his show, The Herd, on Fox Sports 1. Colin Cowherd isn't the only one giving the Bills props. Good morning football. Peter Schrager. Jim Rohn. From over there, what? what is he CBS? CBS Sports. People everywhere in the national media in the wake of Sunday's win are taking notice of what I think everybody here in Western New York and around the world, Bills fans everywhere, anyone who's shown up at the stadium with me every single week so far this season already knows the 2019 Buffalo Bills have been unlike anything that we've witnessed in a long, long time. What makes them stand out so much by comparison to decades worth of teams and a half dozen other staffs and rosters. It's bigger than any one game or any winning streak or just some temporary accolades you might try to shovel onto them. I think it's McDermott. 
McDermott is the reason that this is different. Yeah, the culture is a little bit different than uh, what we've previously had with Dick Geron, Greg Williams. I'm not going to name everybody, but... Chris, when you go back to when the man was hired here, he wasn't the flashiest name on the market, but he wowed the people over One Bill's Drive to the point that they brought him in here and made him our head coach. First-time head coach. You're talking about rebuilding a program... You've got a reasonably new ownership group who just got burned on their first head coaching hire. They turn to this guy. And he comes in here and he's just very unassuming. He's, I don't want to say soft-spoken, but he's measured. He's not what you got used to. He didn't have the emotional, <laughs> the emotional responses of Doug Marone. He didn't bloviate the way Rex Ryan did. But he carried a weight that Chan Gailey never could. Just a just an air about him that no an assertiveness, but unspoken assertiveness that no other Bills coach in his way kind of had to him. But you said to yourself, well, he's just another guy. He's just one more guy that the Bills have hired to come in here and do a job. And then he gets us to the playoffs. Very first season. In an up and down year that was just crazy statistically. It's an anomaly that we made it that year. Well, I don't know if he took us to the playoffs as much as we backed in. Yeah. But when you watch what he's done with this team and with the talent he's cultivated and the way they're coached, what you're seeing is his brand of quiet but resolute confidence. And he slowly, Chris, I want to call it inexorably, started to accumulate firsts for this team. Chris, he's given us in 2019... Our first 6-1 and road record since 1964. Our first win on Thanksgiving since 1966. Our first Sunday night football victory since 2000, which at the time was still owned by ESPN, not NBC. Our first earned playoff berth since 1999. And our first 10-win season since 1999, which I did tweet out that picture of me from 8th grade. <laughs> Chris, in 1999, 1999, eighth you were grade. rocking a bowl haircut. Yeah, it was hot. You were in eighth grade. It was hot. Yeah. Jesus Christ. It was Georgia. What do you want me to do? <laughs> I, I guess as long as you weren't eating mayonnaise sandwiches, you'll be fine. But I think the thing that's most impressive is here's a guy who's broken, Chris, longstanding records. And it's, it's almost embarrassing. To see that they were records in the first place. That they were accomplishments. And yet to hear it from the players and from McDermott himself. They don't think they've accomplished anything. Which speaks to the way he's driving this team. Chris, doesn't a group like this. Led by a fearless quarterback with ice in his veins. Who's willing to put his body on the line. In order to get us a W. And a coach like McDermott. Who doesn't... He, he, he doesn't embrace, <laughs> he doesn't accept failure. But the way, this quiet confidence that he walks around with and that this team just seems to carry with it, regardless of what happens from one week to the next. Doesn't it make you question the boundaries of what is and isn't possible just a little bit? I mean, coming into this season, I think I, might, I don't even know if we talked about it on the show, but it felt a little weird because this was McDermott's third year. And usually with prior coaches, it's 
ah, third year, you know, he's going to be on the hot seat. Never once since August have I felt at all that McDermott was on the hot seat. No. And he's coached. But there again, even if he was, I don't think you'd ever know it. I feel like he'd approach his job the same way he is now. Chris, he's reshaping what this franchise is known for, what it's capable of. I mean, Chris, I've already heard people out there chalking up our next game as a loss because of the history involved with us. New England and Foxborough. It's never gone well. They're, they've always been perceived as our big brother. Why should that change? Yeah, Chris, this is a team that spent 2019 cruising past milestones. So with that in mind, I just have to ask you one question. Why not a couple more? Why not? And to that, I ask you to raise a fucking glass. And I will open a fresh one. Damn straight. Let's go. And so it's with that, folks, with that in mind, that we launch into this week's AFC Playoff Picture Recap, Week 16. Oh my God! Okay, it's happening. Everybody stay calm. What's the procedure, everyone? What's the procedure? Stay that is exactly what it's like, Chris, because we're fucking in. We're in the playoffs. Fill your hand, motherfucker. Mm, delicious. <laughs> As I just knock your nose. I'm sorry. I'm just a little fired up over here. I, 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 yeah, we're in the playoffs with two uh, weeks to go. And we we don't know down. what to do. I don't know. I, I have to find a way to maintain my composure like Will Ferrell in old school. And Chris, we're in the postseason. What's going through your head right now? Does it feel any different knowing that no matter what happens, we'll be watching football after week 17? It's insane. It, it feels weird. I don't I don't know what to do with my hands. Uh, <laughs> it's weird. I don't I'm not I don't ever remember a time where this has happened. I mean, Chris, how does this change the the final home game and tailgate in your mind? <laughs> it's 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 I mean, it doesn't, you know, it's I'm just going to go out there to like, uh, you know, the last home game that we had and tailgate and drink my face off knowing that there's we're going to have a week 18, a wild card matchup, probably against Houston. It's incredible to think about. Like me and my my wife's cousin, Mike, he's coming to the game with us. He's like, oh, we got to get cigars. We got to get some good music on tap, and he's running down a list of how great the tailgate has to be. And in my head, is I'm he like, bringing scotch whiskey? Probably. And in my head, he's just, Chris. He's got the collection. Yeah, he's been to Scotland. He came back with over a thousand dollars of Scotland's finest finest scotch. But the fact is, it's going to be weird going into this final stretch of the season without any negative consequences. Chris, there's nothing. There's everything out there still to achieve. Nothing to lose. We're in. We're in the big dance. There's almost no reason for us as a podcast to continue hashing through the playoff picture, right? Wrong. Because we are the pettiest Bills podcast in existence, and I just can't help myself. So instead of trying to tell you all the games that went Buffalo's way, because ultimately we don't need them, I'm going to talk about all the people who won't be joining us, because fuck them. Chris, the New York Jets got embarrassed this past week in Baltimore and are officially eliminated from postseason contention. 
<laughs> Chris, the highlight of the game isn't anything that happened on the field. But an argument between Sam Darnold and head coach Adam Gase that left backup quarterback David Fales with this horrified face, looking on, listening to the two of them fight, almost like mom just got called a by dad at the dinner table. According to the Jets GM, those are your leading men heading into 2020. (laughs) I gotta say, I love it. I love it. Give me all the Adam Gase in New York City. Then the Cleveland Browns lost on the road to Arizona. Remember all that tough talk, Chris, coming out of the out of just every national outlet everywhere during the offseason. The hard land. <laughs> that the Browns were Super Bowl contenders. Baker Mayfield was a goddamn celebrity. Yet to quote Stephen A. Smith, he's got more commercials than he does wins this year. So it's fitting that the Cleveland Browns went on the road and got embarrassed by the similarly mediocre Arizona Cardinals. Chris, you were there with me when we saw what might have been the highlight of the game. Both Jarvis Landry and Odell Beckham head down after just a brutal interception by by Baker Mayfield. That's incredible to watch. They're just two stud wide receivers. Yeah, their season has gone terribly wrong. Pro bowlers who came to Cleveland amazing. thinking, all right, with me on the inside and you on the outside, and Njoku at tight end and Baker Mayfield, what could go wrong? Everything. But you did it in Cleveland. The mistake on the lake. <laughs> you figure not only did they blow what little chance they had left. To qualify for the postseason, I mean, Chris, they're technically still in it. But they clinched a decade, Chris, a straight decade without a winning record. They have not been better than 500 as a team since before 2010. You just hate to see it. <laughs> the Oakland Raiders lost to the Jaguars. The Raiders in what was their final game in Oakland as a franchise, ended their stay with the equivalent of a wet fart. Somehow you go out there and you lose to Doug Marone and the already eliminated from the postseason Jaguar. (laughs) Chris, how bad do you feel for the people in Oakland? It's like, wait a minute. I don't. we've (laughs) We've supported this team for years. And you're just going to shit on us, and you can't even give us anything positive on the way out the door? They booed. Chris, they booed on their way off the field. As they should. They're Raider fans. I mean, they're They're still... They're (laughs) assholes. They're still in the hunt for one more week. Come on. I'm sure... Hey, our friends over there... Oh, what? Put on waivers? Put on waivers. We're sorry, man. But listen... How do you not just rip these guys a little bit? Don't don't hate me because I'm making fun of your team. Okay, They've lost to three teams, the Jets, the Titans, and the Jaguars, in little over a month who are either all going to be eliminated or, or already are eliminated from the playoffs. I mean, stick a fork in these guys and tell that dunce of an owner that bowl cuts went out in the 90s. Chris, you know all about that because yeah. you somehow kept yours till eighth grade. Yeah, and then I... 
fix it in ninth grade. And you and Mark Davis should have a sit down and talk about your fucking haircuts. I should bring that haircut back, and we should have a sitcom. I'm willing to put this to a bet, Chris, that if I get your yearbook photos from that from eighth grade when that photo in 1999 was taken, throughout the rest of your high school career to now, you are probably the owner of at least seven of the worst haircuts of all time. No, I, I put them up against anyone. After I got rid of the bowl cut, like that summer, going into blonde tips. Yeah, and then I got blonde tips. <laughs> well, I, it wasn't blonde tips. I did have. My top of my head was dyed uh, blonde completely, and uh, that was, I changed my hair then in ninth grade, and then it basically stayed the same, just varying lengths up until I got the mohawk. You did not have blonde tips when I met you. No, that was just a one-time thing. I've also had red hair before. Jesus Christ. I do a fucking podcast with you. I want to throw a beer at you right now. Red hair? I'll show. Yeah, I can show you a picture. Oh Jesus there's Christ! One, there's only one photo, one known photo of me with red hair. Burn it, burn it, and save yourself any further humiliation. <laughs> and then, in probably the only game this weekend that meant anything, the Tennessee Titans, they lost at home to the Texans. This one's interesting in terms of what it means for Buffalo. The Titans losing to the Texans was big for us because it provide some clarity as to where we could potentially be headed for the wild card round. Chris, even just thinking about, oh my God, I was going to say we could go in the wild card round so long as we don't win the AFC East and just thinking about it got my palms a little sweaty. <laughs> like, like at a high school dance when you're going to ask a girl to dance for the first time. Mm-hmm. Jesus. By losing, The Titans gave the Texans the odds to win the AFC South. I mean, essentially, the Titans have to win out and get help. Based on the way things have played out around the league and the schedules left, it's safe to assume that one of three things could happen here. The Bills improbably win the division and host a playoff game. Chris, I'm not even going to break down the mechanics of what that would take because for my own sanity, I have to try to convince myself that that's not going to happen. I have to. I mean, I signed us up for our tickets, but I I have to believe just to maintain sanity that that's not going to happen. The Texans win out or at least go 500 over the last two games, and they win the division. When you look at the seeding, it's likely that the Bills would travel to Houston for their playoff game. My father's old stomping grounds to take on the winner of the AFC South. In reality, us playing whomever comes out of that division is probably the most likely of scenarios. But there's a third one here that's incredibly interesting to me. And everyone keeps telling me that I'm crazy for trying to talk about it. The Bills beat New England while Kansas City and Houston win out. The Patriots would lose their bye in the first round on tiebreakers to Kansas City. And that could result in a grudge match for the Buffalo Bills in Foxborough with the New England Patriots making their first appearance in the wildcard round in literally a decade. Chris, they haven't had to play in the wildcard round since 2009. Uh, I will take that third one because um, I would love to knock the Patriots out of the playoffs. Chris, the last time that they had to play in the wildcard round... They lost to the Ravens. 
I'll never forget it. That Ray, Ray Rice. Ray, Ray Rice. This is before t- he hit women. 80-yard touchdown run. Well, I mean, technically, he hit women that day because those guys played like a bunch of bitches. <laughs> they, I'm sorry. I'm sorry if that's offensive to some of our listeners. I'm just saying, 80-yard run right out of the gate. Set the tone for the game, and the Ravens never looked back. Fuck Tom Brady. It was one of the happiest days of my whole life, watching them get shit stomped. It was amazing. With that said, when you consider the state of them, you'd almost call the Patriots, which sounds crazy, the least dangerous team in the postseason right now. Chris, when you look at what they're accomplishing, when you look at what they're doing on offense and defense combined, wouldn't you say that there are far more threatening teams for the Buffalo Bills in this postseason? Yeah. Wouldn't you almost want the Patriots in the wild card round? Yeah, that would be fun to have them in the wild card round. Okay. Well, if you want to get there, it means that you got to take care of business this weekend. And that leads us to our Week 16 preview. Buffalo Bills at the New England Patriots. The time, 4.30 p.m. Eastern Standard. It's only on NFL Network. So, if you're planning on watching someone that doesn't have an NFL network, boycott. Do whatever you got to do. I, I don't know. Break up with your girlfriend. Move out. I, <laughs> that's all I can tell you. The place, Gillette Stadium, Foxborough, Massachusetts. The weather. Chris, elements are probably not going to play a factor in this. <clears throat> Everything I've read said it's going to be about 36 degrees with a 0% chance of precipitation. Three mile an hour winds. The call. Chris. This has to excite you as a dude who loves talking about broadcasting. I know. Mike Tirico and Kurt Warner will be on on the call. That um, when have, has, have those two ever even worked together? Yeah, when they do stuff like this on NFL Network at, towards the end of the season, you know, you have those like the Saturday games because it's only on NFL Network. So I think they have, uh, I think NFL Network has some kind of agreement with like NBC. To where they can use Mike Tirico. I think Mike Tirico technically left NBC and went to uh, to. He left ESPN to go to NBC. Oh, okay, that's what it is. Yes, and then the line right I now. I miss him. And then the line. Why? Yeah, I miss him on Monday Night Football. And then the line right now, according to my Yahoo Sports app, is New England minus six and a half. So the Bills, having already clinched a playoff spot, talking about being. Almost a full touchdown underdog on the road in our annual David versus Goliath matchup. The Buffalo Bills versus the New England Patriots in Foxborough. And yet at the same time, Chris, I, I, things don't feel as daunting as they usually do. Do they? I mean, this is a team that needed a muffed punt in the red zone to avoid being tied with the one-win Bengals heading in halftime at Sunday. I don't know. There's something different about the way this feels. I don't know if it's, again, we talked about McDermott and all the milestones that we've hit this year. But there's something that just feels different about this matchup. Even though most Bills fans, especially the more cynical ones, probably probably aren't willing to just agree with me on that. And so it's with all of that in mind, guys, that we are going to jump into this week's preview of the New England Patriots. People call it the Boston accent. It's not an accent. It's a whole city of people saying most words wrong. Dante Scarnecchia is a fantastic offensive line coach. We all know that. But, I mean, he's working miracles with that kid. 
Simonelli. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Christian Simonelli making his first in-season appearance on the Rockpile Report podcast. Sir, how are you doing? Uh, it, I'm doing excellent. First uh, in-season appearance as a married man, by the way. I know. I was going to say, we missed you last time. You were off getting hitched. As Chris, I know Chris is already shaking his head as I bring it up. <laughs> yeah, no. You can do a whole lot better things with your time, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> So how was the honeymoon? Fantastic. It was wonderful. Um, and we went for two weeks, and uh, it was great. It was a real nice, well-needed break after all the uh, crazy, um, you know, run-up. Oh, to, uh, I'm sure. Day, so. I mean, it's, it really is insane. I mean, we didn't go on a honeymoon. We took a, we took a cruise afterwards, but it was one of those things, the run-up to the wedding, almost exhausting. Like, it, it's exhausting. It really is. Especially, luckily for me, I didn't have to do a whole lot. My wife, she's a saint. She took care of a lot of it. But, man. Hey, it's uh, it really is. You know, especially you know for uh, for us, the wife ended up getting walking pneumonia. Jesus. And um, so so that was that was interesting. The final couple of weeks, um, she developed that, and uh, but she was a trooper. She uh, got right just in time for the big day, but. Yeah, it was a crazy couple of weeks before before the wedding, getting everything together. Now I've got to ask the question: When you were on, well, when you were on your honeymoon, massages, couples massages. I mean, was that a thing? I mean, I hear you New Englanders are into that kind of stuff. Hey, absolutely! <laughs> we hit the best massage parlors money had, and money could buy. <laughs> Well, that would separate you from Robert Kraft, then, sir. That would separate the best money can buy. <laughs> And, and <laughs> I mean, I know we're doing this over Skype. Uh, you're doing it from your phone. You're not watching us right now, are you? I mean, I know how you guys are with the that camera kind of set stuff. up. I know how you guys can be with this kind of stuff. Nope, nope. I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. I don't have any illegal uh, views of the field or press box <laughs> or room or anything. Not at all. So I guess this is where I want to start with just a general question. Does it ever get tiring as a Patriots fan who wants to really enjoy the things that his team accomplishes that every time you seem to turn around, they found a way to step into another pile of proverbial dog shit? Yeah, it sucks. I mean, I'm not going to lie to you. Um, It it does. It sucks. Uh, You get distracted. And, you know, what, what really aggravates you is that you guys live on social media. I live on social media and just all the crap that comes out that, you know, just tries to knock the team down, tries to knock the coach down. And what really bothers me about all this crap is that years ago when Belichick was asked by Kraft, you know, well, how much of advantage did this get you? And he said less than 1% and Kraft turned around and said to him, well, then you're a real schmuck. <laughs> so that in itself, when you hear something like that as a fan, it's like, you know, what are we doing? And by all accounts, this one seems like an honest mistake. This but one not so doesn't bad. Matter. Well, that's it, because unfortunately, in the in the court of public opinion, I mean, Bills fans have hated you guys for a long time. But I feel like nationally, there's a fuck the Patriots movement, which I have to say, I, I, I'm not gonna. You're not gonna see any tears from me. You're not gonna see any tears from me. But it's one of those things where you, from just one fan to another, you have to look at it. And you got to say, man, 
What? <laughs> At what point does it just become demoralizing as somebody who wants... You just want to watch your football team. You know that your team is good. You know everything that your team has accomplished. But every time you turn around, there's something else. And that just has to be such a pain in the ass. Not just like the, you know, this, the the, the, the taping and the flake gate and, you know, Aaron Hernandez. It's, you know, the uh, the biggest thing really locally that's really gotten a lot of airtime since the summer has been Brady and his contract situation and really just being in a final year um, and not, you know, uh, not going to be tagged. He's not, he's going to be able to test the market for the first time in his career as a New England Patriot. And you say, Hey, you, you don't owe us anything. You gave us such a, a an immaculate, fantastic run for 20 years. Um, but that's really been dominating a lot of the conversation locally around him. Like, you know, the crowd's really going to let him go. And there's a part of your brain that says, 42 years old, I don't care what he does for exercise <laughs> and what he doesn't eat. And then there's the other part of your brain that says, geez, does he have one more in him? Does he have, you know, another two years in him? Um, and then there's the other part of your brain that says, all right, it's, it's time to turn it over. Let's see what, you know, what the next phase of, um, you know, of football in New England is going to be. It's never, ever going to be anywhere near as good as it is now. But there is that curiosity, you know, factor to it that, geez, what's it going to look like? Um, Well, I think that's one uh, of the most interesting things about being an outsider looking at New England. I mean, this is uncharted territory, both as a team and as a fan base for you guys. I mean, we're talking about here, you guys are in week 16. We're in week 16 of the NFL season. You guys have a fantastic record, but it has to feel a little more hollow than usual. No, I mean, you've got a stumbling offense, a rotating door at the kicker position, which should, which is really disconcerting for a team that seems to pride itself on always having its ducks in a row. And a 1-3 record versus teams currently in the playoffs, which, I mean, that, that win against Buffalo, that, that was the... <laughs> It was narrow. Even their one victory wasn't guaranteed until the last, what, minute and a half? So with that said, what does it feel like from a fan's perspective, just trying to take this all in? It probably makes you want to take a two-week vacation to Bora Bora. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it does. Um, I just think that when you are a fan of this team and you, you know what playoff football looks like and you know what a good team looks like and you look at this season um, – What's the Patriots' best one of the season? Um, at the Eagles, at home against the Cowboys. Uh, when you look at their schedule, those are actually kind of their, 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 their best wins. Um, and then you go back to the Buffalo game. Four turnovers in that game and a blocked punt to win. Um, your offense did nothing that day. The Bills' defense absolutely you know, stifled you. And the Bills ran on you that day as well. So you really do look at it and, and, and you say, oh, you know, everything around here for the homers is the, is the, is the, is the record narrative of, you know, hey, 11-3, and three, and, you know, the defense looks great. Yeah, wonderful. The defense is, is, looks fantastic, which is the real shame of it. They're having a historic year. It's a shame that it's going to go to waste because the offense, let me tell you something right now. I'm going to be very clear when I tell you this. Right now, as we sit here and, and, and speak, this is the worst offense in the National Football League. Right now, this wow. week, the worst offense in the National Football League. Okay, See, no, they can't do anything well. Their skill position players suck. 
Edelman is <laughs> like just might as well just be in a hospital bed. He's really, really banged up. You he's, name it. Knee, he's been in foot, tatters. Shoulder. Well, this is the thing, and I guess if we're going to get into this, we're really going to – I want to talk about what Saturday looks like because for everybody out there, I know people who are already writing this off. Well, it's the Patriots in Foxborough, and I understand why they think that. But we're talking about a team in the Buffalo Bills in 2019 that have accomplished all kinds of firsts. So who's to say they can't keep it rolling? The one thing they're going to have to contend with here, and these are, I guess if we're going to start previewing this and dissecting what the Patriots are at this point, I think it's worth talking about how far the Patriots have come from the last time we saw them. I mean, for a, on the defensive side of the ball, for a defense that was on a historic streak to open the season, they've really kind of cooled off over the last few weeks. They're still a fantastic unit and might be one of the NFL's most talented. But there's some things here I want to unpack, and the first one is the turnover def- differential. So the first eight weeks, the Patriots' defense was on a historic pace in terms of forcing turnovers. So their wins looked pretty easy. I mean, they were plus 17 in overall differential. So, I mean, they had eight turnovers by the offense and 25 by the defense. Since then, I think you go back to Baltimore is when I started looking over the charts. They've lost three games while grading out evenly. Negative four by the offense and just four takeaways by the defense heading into this weekend. Do you think that that shift, because you know, that's a dramatic departure. You're, you're talking about almost a, what a, you were, the defense was forcing turnovers on a three to one margin compared to how the offense was committing them. And then everything fell off. Do you think that has more to do with just teams figuring out what the Patriots are doing schematically? Or do you believe it's because they finally hit a patch of their schedule where they played some legitimate offenses? Um, I'm going to cop out and say it's a bit of both. Um, the talent in that first seven games, eight games, you know, was just, you're talking about the bottom of the league, um, the Washingtons, the Jets, the Miamis, just real crap teams. Um, they did beat Pittsburgh early on. They destroyed them in the beginning. Um, that was actually probably their, their best game of the season, um, offensively, offensively and defensively. Defense has definitely cooled off. For us, when we looked at the schedule, you know, everybody around here was saying, all right, weeks 9 through 14, what's the team going to be made of? Okay, at Baltimore, at Philly, home against Dallas, um, at Houston, home against Kansas City. They went 2-3. and three. Okay, they went two and three against, um, you know, essentially all playoff teams. Not good. It's not good at all. The defense, while they weren't anywhere near what they were in the first couple of weeks of the season, did hold their own. If you told me that you were going to hold Kansas City to 23 points at home in September, I would have told you Patriots weren't going away. Um, that didn't happen because the offense just is not good. You know, I told you, the worst in the league right now. They are just not good. They can't do anything well. well and I'm not going to blame injuries. Even though guys are banged up, Brady with his elbow, Edelman, and, you know, Edelman's all banged up, I'm going to blame the head coach and the lack of talent acquisition when you have guys that you're counting on, Josh Gordon's of the world, Antonio Brown's of the world. He did not build the roster to be successful uh, in what looks like Brady's final year. Well, you know what? This seems like a common theme throughout this conversation. So let's switch gears. Let's talk about this offense for a second. 
Back at the beginning of November, the Patriots lost to the Ravens, and it was in the wake of that game that people started talking about offensive struggles, which pretty much everyone, including some of the Patriots' biggest detractors, kind of wrote off as an outlier. You took that Ravens game and you said, okay, okay, they got us. You know, but it's okay, we're going to go into our bye week and we're going to fix things. Since that game, the Patriots are the owners of some of the most dubious statistics in the NFL. Zero games with more than 10 points scored in the first half. Four turnovers on offense to match the four turnovers their defense has been able to generate. Brady has the the NFL worst 37% completion rate when under pressure. Now that first one's something I want to pick your brain about because his offensive line for the Patriots is not good. I mean, coming into the season, you knew things were going to be tested. Back-to-back seasons with a left tackle leaving in free agency. You lose Gronk, who's one of the better, if not best, run-blocking and pass-catching threats at tight end that you've seen in years. And then you take into account injuries at left tackle, center, right tackle. The difference, I think, had used to be that Tom Brady was able to play at a high enough level to cover up the problems on their offensive line. That hasn't been happening, and it's affected their running attack. It's affected what they're able to do in terms of pass protection. So I have to ask, coming into a game like this against the Buffalo Bills, seeing what our defensive front has been able to accomplish against some fairly accomplished offensive lines, how big are the concerns for Patriots fans at this point? Um, pretty big, and the I think you mentioned the, the, the Brady percentage against the Blitz, 37% against the Blitz. Um, there you go. That's all you need to know. An offense that at the end of last year became a run-based offense and was only successful really in the passing game, you know, and I know it's a, a statistics where a lot of people say, you know, you don't need to be effective running the ball for play action to be effective. This team does. You need to have a, a running game that people respect in order for the play action game to be effective. Play action game isn't effective. They're not, Buffalo isn't going to be stupid and, and, you know, key in on Sony Michelle. Like, they're going to lay back. They're going to make sure that Edelman isn't going to destroy them, okay? And if they take out Edelman, um, that's really the key to winning the game. That's the key to anybody else. You know, make Mohamed Sanu and the rookie to kill Harry beat you. Um, the offensive line is a huge concern. When I look at the, <clears throat> the, the changeover from last year, it comes down to really four players for me. Trent Brown at left tackle, Gronk at tight end, James Devlin at fullback, and um, David Andrews at center. You lost four key components last year that turned you into a road grader team down the stretch. And you replaced them with every uh, every single position. Was re- the replacement was much, much worse. Okay, not better, not even equal to worse, much, much worse. Huge drop off. And that's really where who it do had you a think, trickle down effect, I think, right down the line. Who it do you really think did. the well, weak link on the offensive <clears throat> line at this point is? I was going to say, you guys had Russell Bodine. He's not that bad. <laughs> Is that Bodine? <laughs> if anything, I think that's more that, – that, Chris, that is more a sign of just how bad things – it's almost like they kind of forecasted this might get rough. We need to try to bring somebody in here who has some playing experience. If you had to pick a weak link on the offensive line at this point, something that the Bills might be able to exploit or that other teams that you've watched the Patriots play and you're shaking your head going, Jesus Christ, this guy, who would it be? I'd say the center, Ted Karras. I think the best way, as you guys know, to beat the 
Patriots offense is to beat Brady is to get pressure up the middle. And um, <clears throat> he simply knows David Andrews. David Andrews is not a, 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 an all-pro center, but in this offense, um, he had a real command of that line, a real charge. Add to that, Shaq Mason has kind of had an off year. He's been dealing with, we're not quite sure what, but he's definitely been dealing with something. Um, you know, his last game was probably his best game of the season. He got out on there pretty quick on some screen plays, looked pretty good in the run game. But I'd say Ted Karras in the center of that line is the real liability, responsible for lining everybody up. And it just, it's not that quick. Average strength at best. Um, he's, you know, got a banged up knee. So I'd say definitely the center. Isaiah Wynn. Before we move on, because there's a broader point here that I have to make, and I'm going to apologize to you in advance, sir, but I'm going to get on my soapbox for a second. But before I do, Isaiah Wynn. <laughs> now, I've been watching a lot of the Patriots games because, as you know, we are the pettiest Bills podcast in existence, and I just, I really do get off on other people's <laughs> misery, especially when they're in our division. And I've been watching the Patriots play, and one of the things I've right. noticed, I mean, you're talking about a left tackle who, not by any fault of his own, but more bad luck is still very much Chris. He's in, he's a rookie. You're talking about a guy who doesn't have a full 16 games under his belt yet. Joe was Achilles last year. Or was Achilles last year? Hurt his what was it? His knee this year was a turf toe that kept winning out of action. Yeah, yeah turf yeah. toe. Okay, so you have this young individual out there trying to play left tackle, and one of the things I noticed in both the Houston game and the Chiefs game is that. His lack of awareness, he seems to fall prey to some of the more complicated tenets of playing left tackle, especially things like twists and stunts. Considering what you've seen from the Buffalo Bills defensive line, coming off a game where I think they probably played their best football of the season, short of stopping the running attack of the Ravens, is there fear for what might happen out there on the left tackle with Isaiah Wynn? Uh, Yeah, um... You know, I, I, Brady can't get the ball out quick to his guys because his guys can't get separation. Okay. So the trademark of Brady has been getting rid of the ball another two seconds, right? You know, you always see that statistic when you watch a national game on Sunday night football. Chris uh, Collinsworth will have the, you know, oh, look at Brady, look at him step back and look at him release and 2.1, 2.2. He can't do that if guys aren't getting separation. And if he's got to hold the ball a little longer, that's bad news for the guys up front. It really is. And definitely he's been, you know, when has been, you know, susceptible, you know, to those stunts, not being able to pick things up. That comes with, again, practicing and, and missing the playing time. You can sit there and watch Puma in your injury all day long. Wonderful. Great. you got to be out there and you got to be, you know, playing in order to, you know, get used to it. All right. And get a rhythm and get you, get your feet back under you. Um, so I think the edges are definitely a concern. <clears throat> now, you lead off the show and you, you know, mock my, uh, uh, you know, accent, rightfully so, of course. And I, you know, talk about Skarnick and work, working miracles with that guy. Mock his cannon this year. He sucked. He's having a trouble year. So I came around. I was right at the end. Okay. Just, just, you know. I just want to clarify that. He blows. He's awful this year. He's terrible. I will give right you credit so because you, you called. You did correctly identify Marcus Cannon as a bum. And then he had a he got paid is what happened. He played well enough to get paid, and yep. he's very badly regressed. So on the edges, that Patriots offensive line is bad. 
This is what we, I, I guess I'm, I'm just trying to create a picture for everyone who's going to listen to me say what I'm about to say. The offensive line is not providing protection or running ability in front of Tom Brady, which has forced Tom Brady to do a lot of the heavy lifting this year. And so that's where I have to have this. I mean, they're offensive. They're downright offensive. And with that comes the next part of this conversation about what the Patriots are on offense. 2019 Tom Brady is what I would label a chicken versus egg conundrum. Okay, I completely understand that this is the point of the show where people are probably going to shake their heads, they're going to laugh at me, get frustrated, call me names, maybe even skip ahead in the podcast. But I have to ask into the ether whether or not we're finally seeing the end of Tom Brady as we knew him. I understand it. I understand. It sounds like a stupid question. You'd scoff at it. Cerebrally, he is still one of the most dangerous quarterbacks in the NFL. He has yet to truly be dethroned by anyone in a genuinely meaningful game. He's lost to, you know, we've talked about the losses in the regular season to playoff teams. But nobody has beaten Tom Brady when it matters, when it's gut check time, when every game is the last game. So given that the conversation can't be as simple as, quote unquote, is Brady done? But in my mind, it becomes, is Brady no longer able to carry the load? That, that's a fair question to ask, right, Simonelli? Absolutely. Um, look, if you took 2006 Tom Brady and you put him on this team, the offense would look better. 2006, I go back, that's the year before they got Walker and Moss. They were throwing to Doug Gabriel, Rashad Caldwell, and the corpse of Troy Brown. Okay, they had nothing at the wide receiver position, and he made the AFC Championship game and had a 21 to three lead on the road against the Colts with nothing, nothing at all. Um, I look at it this year, and look, 2000, I thought he was done. Kansas City game in 2014, I thought he was done. Last year, after pitch, after the Steelers game, I thought he was done. Um, eventually, he's going to be done. And I think this year it's more obvious than ever that he can't carry the team by himself like he could in years past. He used to be able to cut. You guys know this. How many times you, you come up to Buffalo with these no-name wide receivers and running backs and Brandon Bolden would run all over for a big game and then you'd have, you know, guys catching passes. You know, who's this guy? Hundred, you know, Chris Hogue. All those average jokes, okay? Well, he's got a guy in Philip Dorsett who is an absolute mystery to me, looks like Jerry Rice one week, the next week he catches five, you know, one catch for five yards. Um, he's not making do with what he has. And part of it has been, in the past, has been his reluctance to work with the, with the younger guys. He'll give them an eye. If they drop a ball, he won't go to them for the rest of the game. Well, if and they this run a is, wrong route, he'll and, scream at them. And, and you start in the Houston game on Sunday Night Football, the national audience. He's just got not patient anymore. I think him not being patient as he once was, coupled with the age, I absolutely think we are definitely seeing slippage. We've seen slippage this year. Well, and this is it, though. Can you really blame... Far be it from me to defend Tom Brady. Okay, far be it from me to defend him. (laughs) But let me walk this down for Bills fans who maybe haven't been paying close enough attention to the Patriots roster. You've said it all along. You you started this thing, which I love it. I love the fact that you're willing to come on a Bills podcast as a Patriots fan 
and just malign the hell out of the playmakers around Tom Brady. And with good reason. You just talked about Philip Dorsett, who's been a massive disappointment since you guys acquired him. You've got wide receiver Jacoby Meyer. He preseason all-star, but he's an average-sized wide receiver with a little bit of speed who's got real suspect hands. He hasn't caught more than 50% of his passes since week 11. He's got nine catches on 21 targets. Rookie Nikhil Harry, big wide receiver, some speed and some size that you would think, hey, this guy can force mismatches. But then you watch him play in real time and you see him, he's struggling to get any true separation. And he's still trying to figure out how to get how to beat zone coverage. I think this is one of the things that I've seen from him. When teams go to a zone look, Nikhil Harry, for all of his size and his strength and the things that he might be able to do if he cleaned up his route running a little bit, he has no feel for how to just get behind a zone and then sit down in it and make himself available. Or stay in bounds. He, he just doesn't... Un- <laughs> oh, my God. You're gonna, that's a sore subject for him. Come on now. We, you and I both know... That if the Patriots salt on the wound, they salt on the wound. We had all know, we all know that if Bill Belichick had still had a challenge flag, he would have thrown it. But he did, <laughs> which is hysterical. Oh, the thing with Nikhil Harry is that he's yep. regressed. I mean, this last game against Cincinnati was the first step forward we've seen him take all season. Because at one point he, he had four in his very first game, and he was seeing one target per game against Houston and Kansas City. Games that Brady was desperate for playmakers. Tight ends, Ben Watson, Matt Lacoste, Ryan Izzo. I mean, Jesus Christ, it's a wasteland. I mean, people here in (laughs) Buffalo bitch about Dawson Knox and his drops. Izzo is the 105th of 113 tight ends rated by uh, those nerds over at Pro Football Focus. Watson and Lacoste are both 80th and 92nd. They, over the course of the three games leading up to Cincy, they had 12 targets, six catches for 73 yards. That's it. They don't give you anything more than yeah. blockers. <laughs> They're just bodies. They're running around out there. That's it. Yeah. And I think one of the things, and I want you to speak a little bit to this, one of the things that F- Bills fans, again, will not understand when I say, I think it's time, you're seeing the cracks in the foundation here. Offensive coordinator Josh McDaniels without wide receiver coach Chad O'Shea. One thing that people who follow the Bills intensely and don't look at the NFL in a macro view wouldn't realize that Chad O'Shea was in charge of scripting the red zone plays for the Patriots offense for the past few years. When Brian Flores got hired for his head coaching job down in in Miami, he took Chad O'Shea with him. And the result is that under McDaniels alone, trying to script the Patriots' offense, their touchdown percentage in the red zone is less than 50%. They've tried 11-man, they've tried 12-man, and they've tried 21-man personnel, which obviously gets made more difficult without having a stud tight end, and it hasn't changed the result. I mean, Simonelli, you have to be pissed when you see them in the 20, and they cannot find a way to get in the end zone. It's, uh, it's extremely frustrating for a team that, that does it routinely. What's even more frustrating is they go up seven to nothing against, um, Kansas City. Um, JC Jackson has a beautiful interception to get the ball on the other side of the 50. <clears throat> Nine times out of 10, that's a touchdown. You're up 14 nothing at home against the Chiefs. And now the Chiefs are playing catch up. 
And that really changed the tenor of the game, them not converting any points um, off of that turnover at all. And it's been the story all year. You go back to Harry, as you mentioned, having trouble with zone defenses. We saw this back in training camp. I came on your podcast. I told you in training camp in the, in, in the preseason what this wide receiver position looked like. And it was, it was a, a wasteland, a bunch of has-beens and, 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 you know, maybes. And it didn't get any better at the beginning of the season, and it hasn't gotten any better. True, Harry's first, best game was Sunday. Um, he did make a nice play in the end zone to score a touchdown where he did continue his route and did and broke off of, broke his route off and, and, and gave a little bit of time so Brady could, you know, move around the pocket and find him in the back of the end zone. That was good. But, you know, there is no tight end to go to on this offense. And how do you not draft the tight end after the tight end was the focus of your offense for the past decade when you drafted Hernandez and Gronk in 2010 and for about three years there, it was a tight end driven offense. And then you had Gronk from, you know, 2013 on. How do you not draft the tight end? How do you not draft two? Even if all people say, oh, well, Gronk left them hanging. And, you know, he left them hanging. He thought, you know, he, he told them late. Doesn't matter. Like Belichick has never, never ever built a team like that. Belichick is always drafting a year ahead. You'll see a bunch of guys. Perfect example: a guy like Damian Harris hasn't seen the field at all this year. You spent the third round pick on him. Guys riding the bench, red shirt year. Does it with draft picks all the time. Um, but this year the problem is they needed players and they didn't get them. Um, you mentioned Jacoby Myers, absolutely. Just another guy. And again, Brady losing patience, screaming. Adam on national television breaks his root off. Myers turns around, puts his hands up, and Brady's screaming and pointing, "Go, go, go!" Philip Dorsett's been in, been in the, uh, on the team now three seasons. Brady um, has a. Uh, they showed in a film. Dan Olaf, who's actually a pretty good um, follow on Twitter, showed a, um, a Brady doing like a, a gun signal, which meant that Dorsett was supposed to go. Okay, Dorsett didn't see it didn't recognize it, didn't know it, whatever. He was supposed to go. Brady threw the ball, and it landed, you know, near nobody in the first row. There was no, no, no defender anywhere near it. Well, let's... Didn't run the right route. Well, okay? and, let's, and let's talk about that, though, for a second, because here's the flip side of this coin. Like I said, this is a chicken versus egg argument. This isn't just Tom Brady's innocence. It's poor Tom Brady. He's not getting any help. He's not alone in this. Now, <laughs> I, I, what I'm going to do is I'm going to walk yep. you through... You want to talk about salt in the wounds. I have a collection of plays, and I want to give a big shout-out to Patriots uh, podcaster Mark Schofield of the Sco Show podcast over at patspulpit.com. Not only is he a great listen, but he gave me, from his work and being able, uh, able to pick his brain after the fact, on some of the following plays, because I think this is worth talking about. You want to talk about how the people around Tom Brady have failed. Well, let's look at some of the plays over the last few weeks where the offense didn't work, whose fault are they? First of all, the interception versus Kansas City. Everybody runs the correct route on that play. You're, you're here talking about him criticizing the players around him. Brady's mechanics in the pocket yeah. break down. He has the ability to step into the pocket and throw the ball. But instead of keeping his feet planted, he locks his front leg, kind of takes like a Frankenstein lurch mm -hmm. into passing the ball because He's trying to use his whole body to force it. Not just his shoulder, but his whole body. And he ends up, when he does so, puts the ball behind tight, the tight end, Ryan Izzo. And at that point, the, K, the Kansas City safety just steps right into what is one of the easiest picks he'll ever have. 
That's it. End of the drive. Mm-hmm. Then critical incompletion on fourth down. Kansas City brings zero blitz. Okay, that's it. They're they're not covering. They're sending the house from, and, and it comes from the right side. The pressure that makes it into the backfield, both the linebacker and the slot DB covering Julian Edelman. Now Brady can't step up into the pocket when, after the snap because his center Ted Karras, as you pointed out, who doesn't win with power, is being pushed into the backfield. Brady's mechanics break down again as he's trying to throw on the run, and he misses this wide-open wide receiver. He throws the ball on his feet. It's not even close to being a catchable football. Those are plays that vintage Tom Brady would make almost every single time. Yes or no? It's okay. Uh, 100%. Then in the same game, though. On the quarterback, yep. But in the same game, I see more of what you're talking about. The Kansas City sack on Brady. Now, we just got done talking about Isaiah Wynn and how he's still wet behind the ears because he just hasn't had enough time. He hasn't had enough reps to be trusted snap after snap after snap in pass protection. The Kansas City defensive line runs a stunt in Isaiah Wynn, which we already, we've established he struggles with. And when Brady tries to evade the defensive tackle, his center just maintain, fails maintaining the block. And they just sandwiched Tom Brady in the pocket. Just a complete collapse around him (laughs) by his offensive line. And then I think in what might be the most damning indictment of the talent around him. Are you a Jacoby Meyer fan? Before I even bring this up, I just, because I don't want to, you know what I mean? I don't want to hurt your feelings any more than I already have. (laughs) No. Okay. Third and goal from the five-yard line, 12-26 to go in the fourth quarter. Here's the Patriots trying to mount a comeback. Brady snaps the ball. You're in the red zone. This is critical if you're going to climb back into this game. He has his very first read off the snap. Jacoby Myers wide open because the defensive back covering him plays man coverage. and isn't anywhere near close enough to tackle him before the end zone. Instead of pulling the trigger on a pass to Myers... Tom Brady, if he's nothing, he's killer instinct, right? I think we can agree that that's something he's thrived on throughout his career. We've seen him, as Bills fans, do it countless times to us. And instead of pulling the trigger on the busted coverage, because it's Jacoby Meyer, I'm willing to I'm willing to bet because of, he had, had a drop earlier in the game and is overall not sure-handed. Instead of pulling the trigger on the obviously open receiver, he shifts away from him and goes looking to see who else. Who else is out there? It's one of those moments for those of you who watch Shark Tank. It's like when a shark makes you an offer right off the bat and you lose him because you (laughs) you hang around for too long trying to see whether there's a better deal to be had somewhere on the table. And that's exactly what happens to Brady. He turns and tries to go through the rest of his reads, gets sacked, can't find another target, the Patriots end up not getting any points on that drive. These are the things that are shaping their losses to competitive football teams. And when you see something like that, it, I have to ask you, from a macro view, <laughs> I don't believe this is the end of Tom Brady. Is it Tom Brady just not being as effective as he used to be? Is it the lack of talent, or is it that Tom isn't talented enough to make up for this just egregious lack of execution around him? I, I just think that he he's no longer 
the quarterback that can make up for the lack of talent around him. And he's at a point now where, and maybe this, maybe this started to change last game with the more plays, you know, the more balls that went to Harry. But he's just at the point where, you know, Myers said it earlier in the season. He said something to the effect of, look, I only get so many chances, so I got to get my stuff together. And, you know, hopefully we can, we can get on the same page. In other words, if I screw up, quarterback isn't going to come to me. And in this case, you, you give a prime example where Myers is, is, is the target and he, you know, is open and Brady is, you know, most likely he was probably looking for Edelman, you know, his go-to guy. And I just think it, it's a really a combination of he's not the quarterback he once used to be and the talent around him is very, very limited. Now, you, you know, you talk about, you know, quote, you know, in quotes, is this the end or the slippage, whatever. I think the worst thing that could happen for the Patriots uh, this year is everybody looks back to last year in the final two games again and say, they go together, they found an identity, and then they went on a run, okay? Yeah, after that Pittsburgh game, they figured out that they could run the ball, that they could be, you know, bigger than everybody else, bring in big guys, run the ball, and be effective. They cannot do that this year. They don't have the running game to fall back on, which is a quarterback's best friend, no matter what quarterback you are, especially a quarterback that's 42. They don't have that. So, so I, I just get, think that for them to go anywhere, you know, far this year in the playoffs, for me, in my point of view, is a long shot. So I have to ask the question. And it's a shame, like I said, because you're wasting the defense who is having an excellent year. Not it's a historic year, I mean, but a, an excellent, excellent year. I would have killed, I would have gave my left arm for a defense like this in 2011, 2012, when the <laughs> offense was a pinball machine. And the defense couldn't stop a nosebleed. Yeah, those years were fun. I'm not going to lie to you. It was fun watching that. But with that <laughs> said, we're going into a matchup in Foxborough that doesn't feel the same way these other games have. I don't know if it's because of the Bills. I don't, I don't know if it's just the euphoria still talking over us being a playoff team by our own merit. I don't know if it's... <laughs> I don't know if it's just... I'm on a high right now. So maybe that's doing the talking for me. But let's not forget, the Patriots, this isn't all doom and gloom. The Patriots are still very good at a couple things, at least. I want to walk through these with you. First of all, we know Stephon Gilmore. Stephon Gilmore is a lockdown corner at this point in his NFL career. What he's doing is incredibly impressive, much to the chagrin of Bills fans, who, you know, hate him or love him. The fact is, we weren't going to pay the guy what New England paid him, and he has grown incredibly under the coaching of Bill Belichick, which kudos to him. I guess the thing is here, I want to try to identify what is it that Bills fans have to worry about and what are you worried about as a Patriots fan? We'll do two on offense and two on defense. On offense, what is it that the Patriots do well enough that the Bills, despite how good their defense is, probably should still keep an eye on? Well, um, you know, I still think that James White can be dangerous, and I think teams got pretty smart this year by line, lining up a safety or a, a cornerback on him and taking him out. I think James White against any linebacker um, is going to win that matchup. So I still think James White is a, is a viable threat 
um, you know, on screens and in the passing game. Look, I, I just said on offense, I, I can't give you a number two like, <laughs> that they do well or a player that you got to watch out for. I can't. I'm I opening can't. a fresh if, beer after if that, that, sir. Was healthy, <laughs> if that over was healthy, I'd say Edelman. Um, I can't give you anybody else now that, you know, that, now that being said, like Rex Burkett will probably have a big game on Saturday and he'll come out of nowhere. <laughs> um, but I, I just, I don't see it. That hasn't happened a lot this year either. You know, usually there'll be that, you know, where did Danny Woodhead come from with 100 yards, you know, those years. Um, that hasn't happened this year uh, at all, really. So I can't give you anybody else other than James White right now. In, <laughs> in terms of defense, then, what what is it that you, I mean, obviously, wh- where is it that you expect them to thrive and where's a place that you think they'll struggle? Uh, they'll thrive in the pass game. Um the, 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 the pass defense is legit. Um, they really they they are no joke. The first against the pass, the second um, uh, excuse me, second in passing yards overall points at first. Um, and the the corners, the secondary is extremely deep. One thing to watch out for though, Jonathan Jones did get injured um, yes, Sunday, did. so you got to keep an eye on that. But they're really deep. You got a second round pick. And um, Joan Williams that, that that came right in. So Joan Williams, J.C. Jackson, coupled with Gilmore, and you know the safeties in the back end with McCordy and Harmon, um, they're excellent, excellent at getting getting at the ball. Where they are susceptible though, and where they have been susceptible, especially early on in games, and, and we saw this in Buffalo um, early in the season, is the run defense. Um, Frank Gore had over 100 yards against the Patriots, and um, Baltimore absolutely steamrolled them. And, you know, the run game is really where they're vulnerable. If there's one vulnerability, um, I think they're still holding teams to under 100 yards a game, so they're like seventh or eighth in the league against the rush. But only been um, this is one Achilles heel of the defense is the rest defense. Now, normally at this point in the podcast, we'd ask you for your prediction for Saturday, but instead I want to ask a bigger question. Since I have no, we have no skin in this game, you lose, you lose. Okay, it's another loss. I mean, trust me, this win would mean so much more to me than I think a lot of wins, and I think a lot of Bills fans would treat it as. I think I'm alone in my mania because of the years of abuse that I've sustained at the hands of the New England Patriots. <laughs> so with that said, I want to flip the script here and ask this question. Knowing what you know about how the Patriots season has gone, knowing what you know about how they've struggled as of late trying to play teams, to your point, not a whole lot of meaningful victories on the docket for the Patriots this season. And their losses seem glaring by comparison. What would a loss the first loss to the Buffalo Bills with Tom Brady in as a four-quarter starter. I think since uh, 30, since 31 the, nothing. Since the building was erected, what would that do? What would that mean to you as a Patriots fan, losing to the Buffalo Bills at this juncture of the season? Simple. Dynasty's over. Um, he has owned the Bills throughout his whole career. If Tom Brady loses to the Bills at home, um, the dynasty is over. Not now, I want. To, I'm not taking away anything from the Bills. I'm not taking anything away from you guys. You guys have had an excellent year. You are definitely building something there. This is a good team that went on the road, beat the Cowboys, went toe to toe with the Ravens. No, 
that's not a slight to you at all. But to me, as a Patriots fan, looking at the body work over the past 20 years and Tom Brady against this team, if he loses at home on Saturday against the Bills, this is the end of the run. That's what I like to hear. That's what I like to hear. <laughs> Bring it on. Oh, my God. Now, see, now, look, what, you, what are you doing to me, Simonelli? I'm ready to run through a brick wall. Let's go. Can't can we just fast forward to Saturday now? Fuck. Yeah. And what better way for us to stop you from uh, getting to your fourth straight Super Bowl, considering we're the only team that's done that? <laughs> Yeah, fuck you guys. You're not taking the, You've taken enough what? from me. You can't have this one. Ah, Mr. Simonelli, <laughs> it's always a pleasure having you on the show. Why don't you tell people where they can find you on Twitter? Because, guys, he's he's a great guy. He's fun to interact with. Obviously, we have a blast with him just talking about football. He's a pragmatic Patriots fan, which is one of the hardest things on earth to find, I feel like. Yeah, they can, thank you. They can find me at Chris with the T-I-A-N. That's my moniker from uh, Patriots Unfiltered, the lunatic screwball caller that's called in there for years, and that's, that's the moniker they gave me. But, um, yeah, give me a follow. Give you a follow back. I love going back and forth with the Rock Pile Report, especially I especially enjoy the gifts of Drew during the game. Um, that's a highlight in itself. So you sitting on the couch holding a beer and scratching your head, I didn't know if you were hungry or you had to go to the bathroom on Sunday. <laughs> Yeah, watching it's generally become one of Chris's favorite pastimes is watching me watch football. Yeah, and if I can share that kind of content with the world, Jesus, I'm going to do it. <laughs> Christian, as always, we very much appreciate your time, sir. Again, that is Christian Simonelli on Twitter at Chris with a T I A N. Give him a follow. At least he knows that the that Brady's time is coming to an end. God, please, please allow it to start on Saturday. It better be. It better be. But with that said, the Bills, if they want to get there, they're going to have to take they're going to have to take care of a few pieces of business, and that, Chris, leads us to this week's keys to victory. Wow, it's a lot of keys. Bigger the keychain, more powerful the man. And I am feeling strong tonight. Come on now, strong as an ox. First of all. You want to beat the Patriots, you muddy the pocket. For all of his skill, pressure is the name of the game for beating Brady. And like A-gap, we touched on. A-gap pressure, right? But, but now it's just pressure in general. 37% completion percentage when under pressure in the pocket. Chris, it's the worst of any active quarterback in the NFL. You can blame it on the playmakers not being improvisational. You can blame it on his age or his breakdown in mechanics. Ultimately... Oliver, Lawson, Phillips. We need those guys to make life difficult for Tom Brady, which will simultaneously throw off their uh, the entire rhythm of their offense. I mean, Chris, the Cincinnati defensive line just spent half a game eating the Pats offensive line for lunch. I have to believe that our guys can at least come close to replicating some of that. Doesn't have to result in sacks. Just get pressure. Pressure is what's going to win you the day. To that point, continue to win in the trenches on defense. The thing that gave Cincinnati, when you watched that game, Chris, and it was 13-10, to 10, and the only reason the Patriots even, tie, even took the lead before half, even took the lead, was because of a muffed punt in the red zone that they still couldn't score a touchdown on. 
The thing that gave Cincinnati and all of the teams that have recently beat the Patriots a leg up was pressure on the quarterback. And just stopping the Patriots running backs from being effective. I mean, Sony Michelle was the only thing working for the Patriots in that first half, and it was hit or miss. And it allowed the it allowed the Bengals to hang around and stick in the game. If you allow them to 100% lean on the run, it balances the offense and then protects what is their Achilles heel in pressure on Brady. They seem to have their most successful runs and plays kind of off-tackle behind Winter Cannon because for as much as a liability as Win might be in protection, he and their tackles are pre- and coming off guard. That's where their running backs seem to get downhill the quickest. They can catch the run, they can catch the linebackers kind of off balance. And that's where they seem to make hay. Our big uglies up front have to do a good job of keeping Michelle and Burke at hemmed in by stopping all of their offensive linemen from getting to the second level. I mean, think about it. Lorenzo Alexander, he's having a fucking career resurgence over the last few weeks. Matt Milano, Trey Edmonds. They come downhill. They fill gaps well. If our defensive line can occupy those five guys, I don't see them getting much of anything going in terms of balancing their offense, and they're going to have to quickly rely on the pass. On the flip side of the ball for the Bills on offense, and this is a wrinkle that we didn't get to talk to Simonelli about, but I, I feel like it has to be brought up. Josh Allen winning versus the Patriots linebackers and slot defensive back. When you look at where they are defensively and statistically, the linebackers, you look at their last two losses. The Patriots lose to Kansas City. They lose to Houston. They took a beating in coverage in those games. They allowed 10 receptions on 13 targets for 109 yards and two touchdowns. No linebacker on the Patriots roster has an air yards per completion average of more than 60 or less than six yards. So, Chris, people can throw on these guys. And passes are being caught in front of them. And in those two games, the linebackers allowed 52 yards of yards after the catch. So we need, like, people in the slot, your Cole Beasley's, maybe your Dawson Knox's over the middle. And this is it. Lee Smith, your premier pass-catching tight end. (laughs) Knox, McKenzie. Singletary and Beasley, those four players all have a skill set to take advantage of the fact that despite how good this Patriots, Simonelli mentioned they were eighth against the run in football. But when you put them in coverage, they're not good. I mean, we know what Stephon Gilmore brings to the table, right? Correct. Okay, so don't fucking throw. What? Why? Why steer? Like all of these other teams have done directly into their strengths. When... These two teams, Houston and Kansas City, just gave you the blueprint. Beat the shit out of their linebackers. Use McKenzie on gadget plays to get him to the edge of the defense and take advantage of the fact that none of their linebackers are overwhelmingly athletic. Take advantage of the fact that Kyle Van Noy, for as good as he is in the box and down near the line of scrimmage, he's not great in coverage. Running backs routinely, just he loses them in coverage. When I think about a guy like Singletary, Chris... This is a game where any one of these guys, Cole Beasley, McKenzie, Singletary, again, Knox with his size and speed. There's an opportunity to be had here. 
to not have to throw into the strength of their defense and still win, still generate first downs, still generate yards after the catch. I think that that's why executing under the 11 personnel in that area of the field is going to be paramount to our ability to keep the score close. And then coaching. Chris, our coaching has to shine. I watched the Patriots steal a game from Cincinnati on Sunday. If you can believe that those words are even... Chris, doesn't that sound like lunacy? It is. The Patriots, the AFC East leading Patriots, stole a game from the one-win Cincinnati Bengals. But I watched it happen. Through the first half, Cincinnati was handing New England their shit. But Cincinnati got outcoached and outperformed on special teams. When they came out of the tunnel in the second half, New England already had figured out what they were doing well. They failed to adjust, and that was the end of it. It's all she wrote for them. So with that said, you, Chris, make no mistake. Our staff has to have these guys drilled on remaining disciplined. No mistakes. No bullshit muff punts. No ill-timed penalties. The kind that you see get thrown around anytime someone sneezes too close to Tom Brady. I'm also not, I'm not going to want to see something that happened Sunday night, this Saturday, when it comes to coaching, and that is I want our coaching staff to play to win. Because we could have put, I think we had a legitimate chance to at least move the ball down the field to close out the first half. We had all three timeouts and maybe like a minute 40, 40 to go. That's just playing way too conservative. Be aggressive. It's the fucking Patriots. You're That's, playing with house money. Yeah. You're playing You're already with house in, money. The You're in the playoffs. Be aggressive. They're going to have to make in-game adjustments, Chris, especially in the second half. Something that Bill Belichick, to to his credit, does better than any coach in football. Since he just found that out the hard way. So you cannot, regardless of what happens in the first half, rest on your laurels. But with that said, we've seen this team find its composure. And McDermott and his team can, Chris, with a win here, McDermott can plant his flag firmly into the side of the mountain that is the NFL. Just in terms of coaching. And announce to everyone that, yeah, we may not be at the top yet, but we're here. I'm real. This roster's real. The things that we have going for us, this isn't smoke and mirrors. This is coaching. This is passionate football. We're going to come out here and out-execute you. And check another thing off the Buffalo Bills bucket list. Chris, your prediction. Well, I'm going to assume that this is going to go the same way we've been doing this the last five years for a podcast is where you're all emotion right now. Your Sunday Drew, as Mark Smith likes to put it, <laughs> and you're going to pick the friggin' Bills. I, I cannot pick the Bills to win un, until I see them beat Brady and Belichick. I think it's going to be low scoring because they have a garbage offense and – I don't. Know, Josh Allen still might be prone to making some uh, some bad plays like he did in the first matchup. Uh, it's going to be low scoring, and I think uh, New England's going to win seventeen to fourteen. Chris, are you a fan of the movie Rocky? Yeah, I've seen one, two, three, and four. Okay, so you remember in the first Rocky where he fought Apollo Creed. And it was tough. And by the end of it, Apollo Creed was starting to question whether or not he was even fit to be in the... You know what I mean? 
And it ended. Okay, the heavyweight, the heavy favorite walked away from that with the title. Fast forward a film. Rocky 2. That's when Rocky says, okay, fuck you. I'm going to come in here and take this thing because I got you. I can figure this out. Chris, at some point, you got to believe in something. Okay, at some point, you have to believe in something bigger than just... Uh, Chris, this team has done things this year. We talked about it. They're doing things that haven't been done before. And if you want to do things that you've never... If you want to accomplish shit that you've never been able to accomplish before, then you have to be able and willing to go do things you've never done. You have to accomplish things that you've never even... That previously you never had a sniff at. I think the timing, I think what's at stake, I think the fact that this is a backbreaker game for an opponent of yours that you don't even really... Like, Chris, you lose this game, there's no ill consequence. But what did Sean McDermott say ever since that, Chris, you remember, lost to Cleveland. Sean McDermott comes out and says, we're going to play fearless. What have they done since then to, to, to give you an idea that like, they're not doing that? They're taking on everybody. They're rising to meet every challenge. And in good conscience, in the name of all that is holy, I will never pick the Patriots over the Buffalo Bills. I think it's going to be a low-scoring game. I think we're going to see another another game like we saw on Sunday. I think you're going to see a I think you're going to see a Buffalo Bills defense that's energized, that understands what this is and what they're capable of now. Chris, you shut down the Ravens. You shut down the Ravens rushing attack. You took away what that team did well. You took away what the Steelers wanted to do. You found a way to impose your will with your defense. Why should this be any different? I say it's the Bills. I say it's a 14 to 13 game. 14 13. Nah, no, 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 no. Because we're we're gonna kick field goals. Chris, there's no way you don't, right? So what we're gonna win five to two? No. I'm gonna call it 17-13. 17-13. Buffalo Bills. Oh, my God, Chris, you're such an ass. But with that said, Chris, we got to get out of here. But before we do, we have a few pieces of business. First and foremost, December 23rd, folks, a reminder, our fifth annual Festivus celebration. Festivus is back! That's right, folks. It started out as a Seinfeld theme coping mechanism for everything that was going wrong with our football team. And yet, five years later, we're still here getting together every holiday season. And with the help of you guys, we get together, we air our collective grievances over what bothered us about that year's Buffalo Bills football team. And 2019 is no different. It's cathartic. Listen, it's a great time for you to get things off your chest, especially now that we can walk into the playoffs with a clean slate. Get it all out there. Yeah, whether it's something that you saw in the Cleveland game, the Cleveland game as a whole, something Brian Dable's done, something that you haven't liked from our offense or defense or special teams, air it out to us on Twitter, our email address, Reddit, Facebook, wherever you find us on social media. Air your grievances to us. 
On Twitter, hashtag Bill's Grievance. We're going to post a Reddit thread over at uh, the Buffalo Bills subreddit. And if you're in the area or just going to be in town to celebrate the occasion, folks, the final Rock Pile Report tailgate of the year. December 29th, 5330 Big Tree Road. Where else would you rather be, guys? Laughs, food, beer, a steaming batch of Uncle Drew's cough medicine. <laughs> I don't even want to know what that is. I don't even think I've had that yet. Oh no, Chris. Just bring the tea kettle and make sure that and make sure you're getting an Uber home from my house. <laughs> okay. And if you guys want to know what Uncle Drew's cough medicine is, then come to fifty three thirty Big Tree Road. Folks, no matter how this season plays out, we're in it. We're in the dance, baby. We're playing with house money. I want to see this team go into the postseason on a high note. Chris, I'm fired up. I can't wait for I can't wait for Saturday night. But with that said, we got to get the hell out of here. Guys, as always, thank you for coming out and supporting us, for showing up every week. Week in, week out, we do this for you guys. I mean for ourselves, but also for you guys. And we love each and every one of you. I'm Drew Gear, that's Chris Krueger, and this has been the Rock Pile Report.